It's been a, a few weeks since I've preached, I guess, this kind of message. I did have a children's message last week. And uh, as I sat down this past Tuesday to, to plan out my message, uh, I was going to return to a topic that we were going through, Christian community. And I, I guess I, I ended up feeling content with saying, well, that topic just feels done as far as I'm concerned. And so we've been jumping back and forth a lot between going through First and Second Samuel and the book of Acts. And so I finished Acts earlier this year. I did look at Second Samuel a bit, and it just didn't feel right. And so lately, what does feel right, for me at least, is the need for joy. <laughs> uh, Lois mentioned it last week during our prayer and share time, and I know I have experienced it in July. I've been gone a little bit. I've taken a few trips. But there seems to be two worlds or two mindsets we seem to to occupy. There's vacation time and happy place and relaxed mindset. And I think I'll turn off the news and look at that beautiful sunset. And then there's back to the grind, and even though I didn't miss my morning news, it's what conscientious adults should do, right? So I'll turn on the news. And there seems to be a narrative in the world that says anxiety and and stress and worrying about the world breaking apart is probably the best mode and medium to be in. Why? I don't know. So I, I easily give in sometimes. I let the world get to me. I let the daily and sometimes not so daily stressors and problems of life get to me and and I wonder, how do I get the relaxation and the contentment of the vacation environment, the vacation mind, if you will, into the mode and swing of every day what is now anxiety living? Is that possible or is it against the rules? And I think when we profess that no longer Saturday is our Sabbath, but Christ is our Sabbath, it's possible. It needs to be possible. And so we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. A letter from Paul written from prison. (laughs) And in many ways, it could be considered actually a continuation of our series in Acts, because we left Paul at the end of Acts in house arrest in Rome. And many think that this is when Paul writes the letter to the Philippians. And joy is a main theme. Joy, no matter the circumstances, no matter the situation. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's found in Philippians. So if you're you're able... I do invite you to stand, and we're going to tackle the first 20 verses today. So if you're able to stand, let's read that together. (coughs) Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In every prayer for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since 
I have you in my heart. For in my chains and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partners in grace with me. God is my witness for how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to test and prove what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And most of the brothers, confident in the Lord by my chains, now dare more greatly to speak the word without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, however, preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can add to the distress of my chains. What then is the issue? Just this, that in every way, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice because I know that through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, my distress will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have complete boldness so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Let's pray. Father, if these words are devoid of Christ or your Spirit's leading, I don't want to be up here this morning. So I eagerly beg you to be exalted. Be the central reason of our gathering. Help us to know you as Paul would know you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to not be Christian in in name only, but to be little Christs, Christians. Father, we long to reflect you. It's what we're made for. So have your way in our hearts and minds. Please give us tender hearts and open ears to hear your word. Speak what it is that you desire with your passion and with the objective of glorifying your son, Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If Christ is your Sabbath, if He is your rest, if one comes to Him to find rest and rejuvenation, then He must be longed for. He must be wanted or yearned for or desired. Because I don't enjoy Christmas because, oh look, it snuck up on me. No, I enjoyed Christmas as a kid and even as an adult because I anticipated it. I longed for it. I wanted family around the table and memories being made. Christ must be anticipated. I think we have this feelings-oriented thinking. Maybe now, maybe it's always been this way, but I haven't lived always, so I can't tell you. That if, if, if feelings aren't stirred somehow unexpectedly or out of the blue, if they aren't dropped on our laps as if by the wind, then they must not be genuine. When the reality is, is I think self-talk and self-conditioning 
into anticipation happens to us more frequently than we realize. Let me give you an example. Pretty quickly after I moved here, (coughs) we were invited to dinner by some neighbors, some folks who don't attend here anymore. And the wife told us, yeah, I'm making fish tacos. And Christy and I, still newlyweds, uh, and I don't think we were even parents yet, we we just shrug while Christy silently chuckles because she knows I don't like seafood, really. And so the whole time, I'm anticipating I don't like seafood, fish tacos. And I think I worked myself into the eventual embarrassing slight gags as I was trying to hold down and picking at the food when we were finally there. And, of course, the hostess assured me, if you would have told me, I could have prepared something else. But how much of my reaction to that was self-talk, self-conditioning? I don't. I know I don't like seafood. What am I going to do? I'll muscle my way through it, and so forth. Christ must be yearned. Christ must be longed for. And so out of the gate, Paul returns to Christ here in Philippians to build up their anticipation for Him. To receive the joy from Him. Uh, Three points uh, in these verses I want to unpack. He began it. He will advance it. And then He must be glorified. These three things I want to look at together. First, He began it. We, We just look at these first few words. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Timothy is a native of of a Macedonian town called Lystra. It seems to be where Paul met him. And then they they together founded the Philippian church. And that's what Todd read for us. And so it's likely Paul is dropping Timothy's name because they respect Timothy. Is Timothy there talking with Paul to whoever is writing the letter, I don't know. Many think that probably not. It's more of just Timothy agrees with what I'm saying here. And so Paul says that he and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus, having ventured as I have done through many Bible translations. There has come to this, there has come this debate about this Greek word behind servants, uh, doulos. Many translations all use servants, but there are a few translations uh, what people would even call uh, conservative translations that use the word slave. And some translators say we don't want to use slave because in our day and age, most, at least American readers will, readers will just have the idea of chattel slavery from the 1800s and 1700s and 1600s in mind. But others will say that servants seems to get too soft to get the idea across. I think the idea that Paul wants to get across is when he says that he is, and by example, we all should be, servants of Jesus Christ, goes back to the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. All of this should be, all of us should be enslaved to Christ to do what he wants. And Paul continues, to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons. He's writing the whole church here. And in the book of Philippians, there is this problem of schism or breaking apart or disunity. And so the need for unity is going to be a theme in the book. 
And so Paul is up front stating, I'm referring to all of you, not just a select few. And I want to look at this phrase here, in Christ Jesus. One of my commentators highlighted it. It made me realize, I don't think I think about that phrase enough. I shrug it off as one of those biblish, that's just the Christianese language that I take for granted. Like I think I get it, and thinking I get it for whatever reason is enough comprehension for me, so I'll just move on. In Christ Jesus. And phrases like this show up in the book. And I think it is really a game changer, if you will. This is how to have the vacation, everything's okay mindset in the world. You and I are in Christ Jesus. I love what the commentary said. He says, Christ is the very environment of the Christian's life. Believers uh, live and move within the orbit of His will, grace, and presence. We find life united by faith to Him, and we cannot live as we should apart from Him. (coughs) In Christ Jesus. I wonder if you can say with me, I should live in Christ Jesus. I should live in Christ Jesus. Because if the fallen world feels dark and oppressive, know that in Christ Jesus is light and liberty. And if the fallen world has bad news for you, in Christ Jesus, there's always good news. And if the fallen world is a heavy burden, being in Christ means the burden is light. And Paul says his readers and his audience are in Christ Jesus. And he wishes them grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Note the language pointing us to the Trinity. Paul wishes grace and peace, I believe, on behalf of one source with two names. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is what God accomplishes because we cannot do it on our own. And peace is not the absence of conflict but it's complete well-being, no matter our circumstances. And this is the wish of Paul to his church. And it is available to us through Christ Jesus. Paul begins his prayer here. I thank my God every time I remember you. In every prayer for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the Gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. A well-known verse, it is important for us to internalize it when it comes to us and God. He began it. He began it. Christ knew you before you were born. Christ knew before the foundations of the world that man would sin, that he would justify, that we would respond. He knew it. And so it's not on us to become righteous. It's on him to justify. 
And even as we perhaps work with fear and trembling, as Paul will say in the second chapter of this letter, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But what's verse 13 say? For it is God who works in you to will and to act on behalf of His good purpose. I think what Paul is, is saying in those moments when maybe we are afraid of the world or heavy with burdens or tempted to live a joyless Christian life as if that sh- should be okay, tempted to dwell on the sin or the struggles, the everyday living, Paul is asking, who began this? Who began our Christian life? Who began our salvation? Who began the good work that, that we sometimes worry will lose its goodness? It is God, Christ Jesus. He who began a good work will carry it on to completion. Do you believe that today? What are you struggling with? Who has let you down? What are you afraid of? God made the world and everyone and everything in it. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but whatever's bothering me falls under the category of God's dominion and Christ's ability to redeem it. Amen? He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Can you own that as a Christian? Verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For in my chains, referring to his imprisonment, and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partners in grace with me. God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus. We we read in the gospel accounts, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. Christ had compassion on the crowds, and the Greek word behind compassion is related to the Greek word behind Paul's affection of Christ Jesus that he has longing for his readers in Philippi, as he himself is imprisoned in Rome. As I came back from yearly meeting a few weeks ago, I had to take stock of this and maybe even repent of this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. How many of us are content, or maybe even not content, but succumbed to being in our own prisons, like Paul is in prison, but then lack the compassion for others. Because we're so concerned with our own stuff, right? Paul is not opening this letter saying, it's horrible. 
I survived yet another shipwreck. I spent over a year traveling to Rome after being imprisoned over in Judea. And here's the reception I get. More arrest in Rome. This is horrible. No, rather, Paul is saying from prison, my heart is with the churches I've planted, with the Christians I want to pour into, with the lost souls who still need saving. Paul's heart as he is imprisoned is pastoral. Whatever you're going through, know that it's on Christ who began a good work in you to carry it on to completion. Friends, if you're down and if you're suffering, whatever trial, when's the last time that you cared about someone else? When's the last time you asked Christ what we just sang? Do you have a soul you want me to minister to? Do you have a lost sheep that needs finding? Right? The affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to test and to prove what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. (coughs) I remember receiving a lot of advice when I came to Woodland Friends Church, and I needed it. I was 23. I don't know why I was hired. (laughs) I I tell Christy she became my wife through drugs, so maybe that's how I became pastor here too. That's a joke. But a wise person's advice was they just need to be told that God loves them. Which, good precedent. Jesus loves me, this I know. And I suppose some advice that might work after that is they need to be told to love one another. Good precedent for that as well. The evangelist John thinks so. But note the qualifier that Paul gives. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I think this is a very important in our day and age when it seems like Christians are getting picked on for upholding biblical truth, biblical convictions, not compromising. Oh, you Christians, don't judge. Follow that rule you have. Just love. Love is love. Jesus says, God loved the world so much that what had to happen? It's not that, oh, I love you and everything's fine. Rather, it's because you've offended my righteousness and blasphemed my law and sinned and brought the curse into the world, my love for you demands I sacrifice my own son. That is a strong love, a costly love, and it's a love undergirded with truth. The love that Paul wants the Philippians to have. You know, maybe Paul's taking a lesson out of the Corinthian playbook. It's a love that has knowledge and depth of insight underneath it. See, the Corinthian church was going wild. And Paul's tone in that letter is kind of, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) There are pagans out there acting better than you. And so before things get out of hand in Philippi, Paul says, as one paraphrase, suggests, and this is my prayer, that your love may grow ever richer and richer in knowledge and insight of every kind, and may thus bring you the gift of true discrimination. It's a love that's more than just blind enthusiasm. It's guided by knowledge and depth of insight. See, God's love for the world is not enabling It's far better. It's redemptive. 
It doesn't wink at sin. It dies for sin. And then it transforms the sinner to sin no more. This sort of redemptive, challenging love is the love that Paul wants his readers to have. And Christ began it. That's the first part here. He began it. He worked through Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Christ Jesus, to call the Philippian Christians out of the darkness and into Christ Jesus to find their Sabbath rest in Christ while living day to day with Him and in Him. Because He began the work. And He will bring them to a faithful end. And in Christ, we can grow to have the affection or the compassion of Christ Jesus for others, loving and loving well with knowledge and insight. And so Paul's next point is that Christ who began it will also advance it. He will advance it. Verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have actually served to advance the gospel. Can we sit with that for a moment? (coughs) Excuse me. Paul is writing from prison. And again, supposing... This is his house imprisonment while he's in Rome. He's writing from having been shipwrecked, from having been imprisoned in Judea. And he doesn't look back. And he doesn't say, I've been wrongfully accused, I've been sidelined, I've been almost dead, almost out of the game. No, rather, my circumstances have actually served to advance the gospel. What if this is true for you or for me? Why am I suffering? Why am I going through a hard time? And dare I even say, why can't I get over this sin? Why can't I be better or do better or be a better Christian? What if even that Christian serves to advance the gospel? Because it's not on you what you've done, what you're doing, what you did, but it's on Christ to continue to bring life out of nothing to make creation out of nothing, to make redemption out of tragedy, and to make restoration out of the fall. Your circumstances can serve to advance the gospel. It doesn't mean we stop trying. It doesn't mean we seek to sin because it doesn't matter. But it does mean we serve a Redeemer. And even our wasted time can be redeemed. Even our tragedies can become God's triumphs. It can actually serve to advance the gospel. Here's Paul's story. He says, As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, we got to understand that maybe even in our uh, day, we, we have a you know, deep understanding and belief in the corruption of courts. Even so, when someone gets slapped with a prison sentence, people begin to wonder, right? People begin to talk. In Paul's day, it was a heavy honor and shame culture. And it was a shame, a true scandal, usually a subject of contempt and scorn, that Paul is imprisoned for Christ. It could be stated in Rome, what's this Christ thing about? must not be socially acceptable. People are getting imprisoned for it. Paul continues, 
And most of the brothers, confident in the Lord by my chains, now dare more greatly, or some translations would say, with greater boldness, speak the word without fear. Right? They see Paul, oh, Christ is making him suffer. Will he stay true to the word? Will he give it up now that it's causing him danger? Is it worth his life? But as Paul remains consistent, his struggles don't lead to his doubt. His pain doesn't lead to his apostasy, but he remains true. So others are emboldened. Others realize, well, Christ suffered and died. So if we do too, then we do too. Paul continues, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, however, preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can add to the distress of my chains. Now, commentators are flabbergasted. Who is this group that apparently preaches the correct doctrine of Christ, but with bad motives? And nobody's got a good answer. And I figured, since I'm 30-something years old and live in a remote hill in Idaho, I could probably figure it out. No, just kidding. They do emphasize that whoever is preaching out of envy and rivalry are not Judaizers, right? These aren't the kind of people that Paul takes a, a huge, or a book, the book of Galatians to rip into. These are, these aren't the people who are apparently preaching Christ crucified, His death for our sins, His righteousness fulfills the law on our behalf. I guess they are preaching that, but, and then, They're also preaching Christ calls us to love, serve, and obey Him. Not to love, serve, obey Him, and then try to keep the law. So again, it's not Paul's opponents in a theological or doctrinal sense. And one thought I had about these people, one of my study Bible's notes made the mention of the shame and honor culture again. And so in the Mediterranean urban culture, people often vied for honor. And it could be that Paul was respected dare we say somewhat, a famous Christian leader, and with him in jail, perhaps some men were seeking the proverbial stage as the next apostle, as it were, right? Uh, Peter's had his day, Paul had his day, well, hey, I'm I'm enthusiastic, I'm charismatic, I'm showy, and I can just give you the gospel just as well as these men. It could have been those sorts of people trying to preach. Wherein Paul could easily tell what their desires or motivations were in preaching since preaching was dangerous and and edgy and had the potential to bring one under suspicion of the powers that be. It could be of those sorts of people. Verse 18, Paul says, What then is the issue? Just this, that in every way, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know that through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, my distress will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have complete boldness, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The point is Christ must be glorified. A few years ago, we, we kind of promoted a book here at the church called Goliath Must Fall. And it coincided with uh, going through the story of David and Goliath in our preaching series through First and Second Samuel. 
And one of the things I appreciated was the author's discussion of titling the book. I believe he said, can, Goliath can fall, felt too suggestive, as if it left room to suppose that failure on David's part was impossible. It's possible for David to fail if he didn't surrender or trust in God's power. Thus, must implied the urgency. The urgency that it can happen and it should happen, and by God's grace and our response, it will happen. And I feel the same way about Paul's thoughts here. He's choosing to not take a personal hit from, how dare those teachers take advantage of my imprisonment? But rather, Paul is rejoicing that Christ is being preached, and he's rejoicing that whatever he, Paul, does, whatever he experiences, he will have complete boldness so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ must be glorified. He can be glorified, and we could say that he will be glorified, but the truth is, is he must be glorified. If you and I want unrelenting joy no matter the circumstances, we must know that He, Christ, began a good work in us. He began it. He sent His Son. He saved us. He called us out of darkness and into light. He showed us the life of compassion for the helpless, harassed sheep. He began it. If you and I want unrelenting joy no matter the circumstances, We must know that whatever we're experiencing, He will advance the gospel. He will advance it. Your sins, your trials, your sufferings, your everything is not wasted. He will use it for His glory. Your circumstances will actually be served to advance the gospel. Why? Because He must be glorified. He must be. It's a a favorite of, of many people, myself included, the first question in the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. And I have verses for this. Hopefully you know them if you've been listening to my preaching for any amount of time. But you can look them up later. They should sound very familiar. Isaiah 43, verse 7. Isaiah 43, verse 21. Psalm 16, 11. And so I had everything in my message written, my slideshow almost done, but then I came here on Friday evening and and I prayed, Lord, how do I wrap this up? Do I, do I go the usual, uh, go to the usual verses, the ones I just mentioned? The Bible never gets old, I know that. But is there something else or something closer to the book of Philippians or to Paul that, that Lord could put the proverbial nail in the coffin of this message? So I went actually back to Acts 16, where the founding of the Philippian church is recorded, and I, and I looked over the stories that happened in Philippi. And to jog your, your memory, first, it's the Macedonian town that Paul goes to after the dream of the Macedonian man. They meet Lydia in Philippi. There is a demonized girl in Philippi being used by her slaveholders. And Paul frees the demonized girl from her demons. The holders are upset because they lost their entertainer and they lost their breadwinner. A riot ensues. Paul and Silas are shackled. And then after an earthquake quake, the jailer comes in and he asks this intriguing question. 
And I lingered over it when I preached through it, actually, two Augusts ago. (laughs) We read, it seems out of nowhere for me, calling for lights, the jailer rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So asks a man who no doubt would be among the first hearers of this letter to the Philippians that Paul is writing. And I asked, what caused him to know this, to ask this question? I wondered over a few things. Perhaps the demonized woman who was rolling out the proverbial carpet for Paul, although it's not the person you want to make your announcement. Perhaps it was the songs and prayers that Paul and Silas were doing before the earthquake. Maybe it was the integrity of them to stay put in the earthquake, and it prodded him to realize that they had something. And I reasoned this in my message two years ago. God just needs to show up, and people get the idea. See, When God truly shows up, there, there is holiness and purity and righteousness, sovereignty and power, and He is so far better than me, He's so far untainted than I am that I know He has every right to slay me where I stand. So I must know, how must I be saved? When God reveals Himself, we know this, there is a God. He made the heavens and the earth. He's transcendent. He's all-powerful. He's holy. He's righteousness. He's blameless. He made us. That means we're all His possession. We owe Him our lives. We owe Him our answers. And as creator of the world, he's also judge. And he's a righteous judge. He is a worthy judge. And he is by his existence as our creator, our judge. And we take stock of our creator, which should cause us to take stock of our own position. We've sinned. We've broken his law. We've corrupted his creation. We've offended his very nature as Isaiah, prophet of God, says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so this is why God must be glorified. He must be pointed to. He must be given weight in our lives. He must be exalted. Because when He shows up, people then ask, How can I be saved? And when they are saved, they are restored into right standing with Him, into their created purpose, into where they can fully enjoy Him forever. That is why God must be glorified. So that you and I can have and will have and must have unrelenting joy no matter the circumstances when He is glorified. Let's pray. Father, we we open the book of Philippians. Perhaps some of us would like to find directions to find a cruise ship and just escape the perils of the world. But you show us something much greater. That you are our Sabbath. That in you we can find rest and joy. That even the trials, the problems that we're experiencing, you can use it to advance the gospel. And that whenever you are glorified, you will fulfill all believers in you with joy. That we will enjoy you forever. Thank you that you are the one who began our salvation. 
Thank you that you are the one who will continue to advance it. And thank you that you will and you must be glorified. So help us, Father, as we experience the coming days and weeks to know that we take your presence with us and help us to take your presence into the trials of others so that they will see you and will know the joy that comes from you. Please be glorified in all that we say and do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.